Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Culture has done a great disservice to the church when it comes to marriage. And we, as husbands and wives, have begun to stake our claim on the claims of culture over the claims of Scripture. And we come into marriage with expectations that are not biblical, but that are cultural. And the pendulum always swings culturally. The pendulum swings between man and woman, between husband and wife, and it swings between um, uh, women's power and rights and men's, women's, or men's power and rights and just swings back and forth. And the Bible does no, does no such thing. The Bible lands firmly and it stands firmly where it stands. Christianity throughout the course of human history has been the only faith religion that has, has risen the stature of women. Christianity from its inception has made much of the role of a woman. To hear that Christianity subjects women, uh, demeans women, is a bold, flat-out lie. It's not what the Bible does. Jesus shares that he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, for the first time with a woman, a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan impure woman at the well and says, you can go tell everyone. When Jesus resurrects from the dead, who's the first person to see him is a woman. And she goes and tells the male disciples. So as we study this, if you come in with cultural baggage and ideas of what uh, the Bible tells us a woman is and you wanna buck against that, I would tell you you're wrong. That's not what the Bible says a woman is. The Bible elevates women. The Bible gives uh, respect and honor to women. And I hope that we'll see this in this passage together, okay? What I wanna do is I wanna start uh, in Matthew chapter five. Jesus has uh, begun his, his journey um, and he is, it's actually gonna be, oh, I think I did it wrong. It should be John chapter five. Don't put it on the screen. That's, that's my fault. If my wife would have done it, it would have been perfect, but I did it and so it's wrong. Uh, John chapter five, so I'll just tell the story. Jesus uh, walks into the colonnade and there are uh, crippled people all around. We studied this when we studied John. And there's an invalid there, a man who cannot walk in John chapter five and he can't, has not been able to walk for 38 years. You might remember this story. And there's a pool there, the pool of Bethsaida. And the idea is that an angel will come in and stir up the water and the first handful of people, maybe the first person in the pool would be healed of his infirmities. Jesus walks into the colonnade into the covered porch area. He walks over some people and comes to this man who's been there 38 years. And Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Which feels like a ridiculously redundant question for a man who's been there for 38 years next to a pool that heals him. But Jesus strikes a nerve because the man doesn't respond with a yes. The man then begins to blame other people. So I'm gonna say this um, just blatantly today. There are none of us in the room today who have a perfect marriage. None of us. And some of us have been struggling in our marriage for 10 or 15, 20 years. And what we've come to believe, because this is just how the world has worked, there are two options for marriage. 
You either get divorced or you stay together and be miserable the rest of your life. Those are your two options. I wanna present a third option with this caveat. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Do you actually want your marriage to be something that God has intended it to be? Because that's the question. The question isn't can he heal and restore and redeem? The question is do you actually want that? Because you'll go to the doctor and the doctor will say you have cancer and then he or she will give you a list of things that you need to do. And it's not until later that you realize how much that costs. But at that point, you'll say, I don't care what the cost is, I will do whatever it takes to be healed. I just wonder if the same thing is true for you and me when it comes to our marriages. Do you wanna be healed? Do you want to be made well? Regardless of what the cost is, do you want to? Husband, do you want your marriage to be thriving? Do you, do you want that? And do you want it no matter what it costs? And wives, do you want that? No matter what it costs, no matter what it costs you, do you want that? Because I think that's where we have to start this morning is, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? And immediately, you might wanna throw out accusations and excuses. Well, I mean, I would, except for this spouse of mine. Well, I would, because I have this family history, and I think Jesus just has the question of, I'm standing before you, do you want to be healed? I don't care what he's done or what she's done or what you've learned in your past. What I'm saying is I'm right here and I can heal and restore. Do you want me to be? It's when Jesus looks at the man and he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. What I'm asking in the words of Jesus today is do you wanna be healed? Because then the simple response is that you would get up, take up your bed and so before we dig into 1 Peter, I wanna go back to Genesis chapter two just to set some standards here for us so that we understand uh, biblically what marriage is and biblically where the problems come in before we can even get into 1 Peter chapter three. I wanna set up what marriage is. Now, biblically, marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's what marriage is biblically what the Bible says that it is. I will also say this. All of us are sexually broken creatures. Heterosexual, homosexual, we are all sexually broken creatures. And God has ordained marriage to be one man with one woman for one lifetime. And he sets the standard back here in Genesis chapter two. So the question, do you wanna be healed? Do you wanna be made well? Then we gotta understand what does well look like? What, what actually is that? And can we trust this God who has instituted it and created it? So here's the biblical context of marriage. Genesis chapter two, let's begin in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's not a TikTok video, that's working the garden and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, now pay attention, underline this. He, who's he telling the command to? The man. He's telling Adam, here is the command. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Pay attention to the command that God gives to the husband, that he gives to Adam, the man. Then verse 18 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Context is important. When does God decide it's not good for man to be alone? When God gives man a commandment. When God gives man a law, when he gives him a rule of life, a way to live life, then he decides it's not good for man to be alone. Is it not good for man to be alone because, um, because then he has no one to be intimate with? No. Is it not good for man to be alone because then he'll never know what it is to be loved by a woman? No. Is it not good for man to be alone because then he'll have no one to make his sandwich? No. It's not good for man to be alone because God has given a command, a decree to man, and man cannot do what God has called him to do in that vein without someone to help him. So marriage is more about our discipleship and sanctification than it is about love and getting along and Disney movies. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a, pay attention to this phrase, helper fit for him. This word helper is the Hebrew word ezer, E-Z-E-R. And it's a weird one to translate, so it gets lost sometimes. And what's happened for many of us, maybe, and women in particular in the church, this has been taught as a subordinate role. A helper then is someone who's subordinate. It's like an assistant. It's like the assistant to the uh, assistant, Dwight Schrute. This is what it is. What the word ezer means is someone who comes alongside and helps. Predominantly throughout the Old Testament, this Hebrew word ezer is used to describe God as our help in times of struggle, as God as a helper for those in need. So to say that this makes a woman subordinate then means that you are saying that God is subordinate as well. The idea here is if, uh, if there's something that needs to be done at the office. I'm in my office and I'm, I'm working and um, Daryl comes in and says, hey, Jeremy, can you help me with this? Daryl's not asking me to take over. He's not asking me to be in charge. He's not delegating responsibility. He is the one primarily responsible for accomplishing that thing. But what Daryl has realized is there's a place of weakness and his getting that done, and his primary responsibility, so he comes and he seeks help from me. What that relationship denotes is not that the helper has the weakness, but the one with the primary responsibility has the weakness. Does that make sense? So when God is speaking, he will later speak of Eve as a helper fit for the man, he's not calling her weak, he's calling him weak. He cannot hold himself accountable. He needs someone to do that for him. And this helper is fit for him, tailor-made for him. We're gonna learn more about that here uh, moving forward. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And that's a lot of pressure. The man gave names to all livestock, all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a Ezer helper fit for him. So what the author of Genesis is telling us is that God was looking for someone to help Adam, to help hold him accountable, to help him in this decree, in this commandment. Adam went through every living creature and found no one, nothing fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs. Now, 
Ribs are at the side of the man. God did not take Eve from the head of Adam to make her rule over him, nor did he take Eve from the foot of Adam to make him rule over her. He took Eve from the side of Adam to make them partners, equal partners in the journey God has called them to be on. At the side of, a helper fit for. Not above, not below, equal to. And intimately equal to from the rib. And he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam says, oh, now there's one like me. There's one of my kind. Verse 24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. In this culture in which this was written by Moses, this uh, a husband would not leave his father and mother. The wife would leave her father and mother and would then come into his family. This is revolutionary in saying that it's the husband now who should sacrifice that. He would leave his father and mother Hold fast, some of your translations say he would leave and cleave. Hold fast to, be stuck to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the Bible gives us a pretty early principle of marriage and the first is this, you have to leave your mama and daddy. Physically for the most part, financially, spiritually, emotionally. And you cleave to your spouse. You hold fast to your spouse. You want to know why many marriage issues come? Because one of the spouses hasn't left mama or daddy. And they still run to them for support. They run to them for financial support, emotional support, spiritual support. And they have, have therefore, are not cleaving to one another. You have to leave and cleave. But then scripture says they shall become one flesh. But look at verse 25 and pay attention. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Now, naked physically, but naked in every other way as well. Just vulnerably exposed. And yet there was no shame. This before there was sin in the world, when everything was as it should be, as God would say at the end of every day, this is what the union of husband and wife looked like. Naked with no shame. Leaving and cleaving, holding fast to one another. This is marriage. This is what we long for. This is what's been put into our hearts. This is what Disney tries to sell us on. This is what Hallmark tries to sell you on. This. They don't know it, but this is what they're trying to sell you on. Man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, every great story has to have a villain. And now we meet the villain in Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent, this is uh, speaking of the enemy, the devil, was more crafty or subtle than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Satan is subtle and crafty. He's wise. So he doesn't ask Adam he asked Eve, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the enemy cannot create, he can only distort and imitate. So he takes the words of God and twists them. 
Now pay attention. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Very good. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Yes, neither shall you touch it. No, lest you die. Now, who did God give the command to in Genesis chapter two? The man. Whose job was it to give the command to the woman? The man. Biblical, biblically, it's the understanding of the man being the covering over his home or over, over his wife. So at some point, something got lost in translation. So the question we all wanna know is, well, did Eve misinterpret what Adam said? And we all know women don't do that, so that couldn't have not have been what it was. Or did Adam stop paying attention to God and then gave her the Cliff Notes version, which again, we know that never happens with men. So I would argue probably both. But Adam stands passively by as his wife subjects herself to sin. He got the command from the Lord, it's his responsibility to communicate that to his wife. And I would say this, his responsibility to make sure that she heard him correctly. Well, she doesn't. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, now the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. And the tree was also desired to, to be desired to make one wise, took of its fruit and ate. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he's got a moment here, doesn't he? Because he heard the command, he knows the command. No matter how Eve misinterpreted or misheard or he miscommunicated to her, he knows the command. He knows not to eat. And yet Adam passively eats. But he took some and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, compare that to Genesis 2, 25. A man and his wife were naked and were unashamed. Sin enters and now there is disruption. There's brokenness in the union with God and with each other. Sin entered the scene. So what we're trying to do as humanity, because it's what's been put in our hearts, is we're trying to get back to Eden. That's, our, that's what we're, we've been trying, we wanna get back to Eden. It's why you've got social justice causes, it's why you've got um, people fighting for certain things that they think are right and bring freedom, because we all have a desire as humanity to get back to Eden. In our marriages, we want to desperately get back to Eden. And what we've believed is the lie that a man or a woman would get you back to Eden. They won't. We're trying to get back there. It's been broken. So broken, in fact, in verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They would have never hidden themselves, and now they are. They're running from God instead of to God. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, we know that God knew where he was, but like any good parent, you're gonna give him a chance to confess. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Did you, did you take that ice cream out of the freezer? And the man said, the woman whom you gave 
to me to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's not my fault. The woman, and then bold of Adam said, the woman that you gave to me. I was doing just fine. I had all these animals. I named all of them. I liked some of them. But this woman you gave me, she gave me some to eat and then I ate. So you notice the excuses, verse 13, the Lord God then said to the woman, fine, then what is this that you have done? And the woman said, it wasn't me, it was that serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And then here's the grace of God. God understands, Psalm 103, that we are just dust. So he doesn't attack the man or the woman directly. Now he goes after the serpent, the root of the problem. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity or distance or anger between you and the, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a, a foreshadowing a prophecy of Jesus to come. But then pay attention in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Amen? Women, Yes? I don't know, you, yes? I've been there, been in the room. I was like, yes, I would say yes to that. But then look at this, here's the next part of the curse. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, this is where it gets a bit confusing for us. Hebrew language again can be confusing and translations are starting to figure out some more things about this. This word for in the Hebrew can either mean um, alongside of or against, which sounds like a really odd Hebrew word, uh, but it's what it can mean. So some translations say your desire will be contrary to your husband or against your husband. A number of scholars would agree that what this is saying is your desire will be against the leadership of your husband. Your desire will be for the role of your husband. The curse, because she stepped forward first in sin, God says, here's what's gonna be hard for you. What's going to be hard for you for the rest of your life is that you will desire to be the leader and yet he will rule over you. Women, amen? The innate desire through the curse is that a woman would desire a role that may not have been created for her. Not that she isn't fit, not that she isn't qualified, not that she isn't smarter, not that she isn't better, not that she isn't stronger intellectually or even emotionally or sometimes even physically. It's not that. What is happening is God is saying, I have created an institution and a way by which we, should, we would flourish and live in our lives. And the problem will be that the woman will desire that. And yet I've ordained that the husband would rule over her. Then to Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife, plenty of jokes there that I will not make. You should listen to the voice of your wife. And I've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the curse to man is your work will be laborious and hard, and you will be exhausted at the end of the day. Now, what's dangerous is that an exhausted man 
is not always a humble man and a kind man. You will be laborious in your effort. Your work will be hard. It should be hard. You should work hard as a man. And still, when you get home, you've got a role to fulfill. Neither one are easy. But this is the curse that is given because of sin. So in Genesis 2, we are given the picture of marriage. And in Genesis 3, we learn why marriage is so hard today. Why is it broken? Because of this. So biblically, that's the context. We'll talk about more here in a little bit. But let me put some context now into 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What are the passions of the flesh? Go back to Genesis chapter three. Your desire will be for or against your husband and he will rule over you. Husbands, you will be so exhausted from your work, you just wanna give up. You wanna give up at work, you wanna give up at home. What are the passions of the flesh? That when that happens, you men, you get angry and vindictive, you bully or you get lazy and passive and you don't do anything. What's the passion of the flesh for a woman? That you will desire that role and when you don't get it, you will speak ill of and toward your husband. You will grow bitter towards him. You will withhold things from him because he isn't being the leader you think he should be. Those are the passions of the flesh. And Peter says, as sojourners and exiles, we need to run away from the passions of our flesh because they wage war against our soul. If we were to pay attention inside of our marriages, you wanna know why we're hurting so much? Because our soul has been wrecked by this war. Our spouse hasn't done it. The enemy's done it. Then verse 13, Peter says, be subject, subject yourself, be submissive for the Lord's sake to every human institution or every institution for humanity. Verse 17, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The context now is happening. At the end of chapter two, he speaks to servants, be subject to your masters. And then 1 Peter chapter three, verse one says, likewise, you're not gonna like this. Like a servant is subject to his master. Like a citizen is subject to the emperor, Wives, be subject to your husband. Again, we put this in context. It doesn't mean you blindly follow, but it means you honor even in confrontation. Be subject to your own husbands, not to everyone's husband, to your own husband. You are not subject to every male on the planet. You hear me, men? Are we good? It's not the role. But be subject to your own husbands. So that, this is an evangelistic bent to this, so that even if some don't believe the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I don't know if you're in here today, um, wife, and maybe your husband is not a believer. He does not know Jesus. He's not faithful in attending church, doesn't lead you spiritually. It doesn't give you a way out. Instead, what scripture tells us is then you love him well. You love him and you honor him as husband. You respect the rank. 
and you love him well, that maybe, maybe just maybe, by the conduct, by your respectful and pure conduct, you might save his soul. Again, it's not that it's not good for you to be alone because you don't have a companion. It's not good for you to be alone because then you'll never actually fully know the heart of God. Wives with unbelieving husbands, you are a missionary in your home. Now he shifts out of that to talk now back to all wives in verse three. Do not let your adorning be, and some translations add the word merely here. I think that's helpful. <clears throat> Do not let your beauty, your adorning be merely external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. So let me say this too. This is not saying that women can't dress up and they can't wear jewelry and they can't braid their hair and they can't dye their hair. I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying I've heard some do. And they can't get their hair done and they can't, uh, I don't know, they, whatever. They can't do, that's not what the Bible is saying. How do I know that? Because in the book of Acts, we meet a woman named Lydia who is a seller of purple, a seller of fine goods. You know what she is? She's a fashionista. She's a Kardashian, essentially, is what she is. And she is one of the founders of the church in Philippi. She is praised for her faith. With that, then, she also works full-time in doing that same thing. Throughout the Old Testament, a number of women are, de are described as beautiful women. This is not about that, but what Peter is saying is if you're expecting your looks to make a difference in your home, you're barking up the wrong tree. So let me just say this as well. Women, you've been sold a lie in culture that all men care about is your physique and how you look. That's a lie. It's not what men care about. We want you to be pretty, sure. But you know why we think that you're attractive? Because you're ours, that's why. And if you can't hear it from him, hear it from me and hear it from uh, other places in scripture, your husband loves you because you're his. The way he sees you today is most likely the way he saw you the day you walked down the aisle to marry him. And you may feel like that's a lie from me, but ask him tonight. And all the things that you are comparing yourself to other women about and how social media has ruined your heart and your soul and your husband is trying to tell you, you're beautiful, I love you, I desire you and you won't hear it and you brush him off and you act like he's lying to you, why would he keep telling you? You wanna win the heart of your man back? It doesn't start with your external adorning. It starts in verse four, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty that doesn't wrinkle and fade, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, before you think I'm going back to black and white TV and you with an apron and high heels on, that's not what I'm saying. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Peter is saying is, would you be like Jesus? Would you have a gentle spirit about you? A gentle and quiet meaning settled spirit about you? The question I have for you, wives, is, can your husband find rest in you? 
Does he feel peace when you're around? He's weary and burdened. Does he feel peace when he's home with you? When we do premarital counseling, Meredith and I do it together, uh, we speak to the, the wife. And we remind her, and I do it the same thing in the wedding ceremony, of, of the power of the words of a wife. Wives, um, you are not, you are the thermostat in your home. You're not the thermometer. The heat rises in your home is probably because you have made the heat rise in your home. If the temperature gets cold in your home, it's probably because you've grown cold. If the temperature feels like we can all rest and sleep well and not having to have one leg out of the covers, it's probably because you have found yourself in a place of peace in your home. The words of a wife are the most powerful words to a husband's heart. For the past few years, I've grown a thicker skin for me um, when it comes to just me as a man and as a person. And remember years ago, um, I, 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 I like affirmation, I like that. Um, I, I feel it's life-giving to me, it's one of my love languages. And I remember telling um, a friend that that's something that I desired and he said, it probably was because you had so much estrogen in your house, that's why you like that. And that hurt. But the truth of the matter is, wives, your husband wants to be affirmed. It's not a female thing. And your words matter to him. I can stand up here and I can teach and I can give all that, I've, all that I have and exhaust myself and pour myself out and study throughout the week. And here's what I know to be true. Some of you don't like me. I'm okay. I'm okay. You keep coming. And you're loyal to the church and praise God for that with you. And I understand that some of you may not like me. You don't like the style in which I teach. You don't like the style in which I dress. You don't, what's well, fine. Like I've, I've grown a thick enough skin in that. But if I get home and my wife says something to me, I'm done. I am done. If I feel like I've poured my heart out in a message and Meredith neglects to say something to me for a week and a half, I'm doing everything I can to earn her approval. Women, what is Peter calling you to? Not to shut up and make a sandwich. What he's saying is be gentle. Be a place of rest for your spouse, for your husband. Be a place where he can um, kick his shoes off. Be a place where he can be himself and not have to perform anymore. Scripture is clear about the words of a wife. Proverbs chapter 19, verse three says, a foolish son is ruined to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Waterboarding, that's what that is. A wife's quarreling, a wife's nagging is dripping rain. Proverbs 21, nine, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It's as if God looks down to the husband and says, hey, hey man, I, I see what's going on. Um, why don't you go upstairs? Get up on the roof. Ah, but it's raining. No, 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 it's fine. Go, it's better. Go up there. It's better up there than it is in here with, Proverbs 21, 19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and a fretful woman, an angry and a nagging woman. 
Women, do you understand the power you have with your words? We're called to be exiles, but culture has told you, you gotta stand up for your rights. You can't let any man tell you what to do. And so what that's turned into is this faux kind of uh, bravado that you have now. And your husband is dying inside. You're killing him. Drip by drip by drip. Do you wanna be made well? Verse five, uh, Peter says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. What was their beauty? They submitted to their own husbands. And again, this submission is not blind obedience. This is not getting beaten for it. In fact, if you're getting physically abused in your home, don't stay in that home. It's honoring in submission. Verse six, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, if you know anything about Sarah and Abraham, they're not perfect. Abraham asked Sarah to do some pretty ridiculous things. But Genesis chapter 18, um, God sends some angels to speak to tell Abraham that, she's, that Sarah's gonna have a son, have a baby. And Sarah laughs at him. She laughs and she says, what, after I am worn out? And my Lord, my husband is old, shall I have this pleasure? And Abraham being called Lord by her, his wife, Sarah, this is not a call to him as master. This is a show of respect to him as the covering over her and her home. All right, husbands, your turn real quickly. Verse seven. Likewise, like a servant to a master, and a citizen to a king, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This word understanding means live with a knowledge of her. You know what gets us in trouble, men? Is that we know about our, more about our fantasy football teams than we do about our spouse. We know more about construction and we know more about the stock market than we know about our wife. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Do you know her? Have you sat down and asked her? Well, I keep buying you flowers. Why aren't you happy? Well, maybe she doesn't like flowers. Maybe you should ask her. Maybe you should have a conversation. Be an expert on her strengths, an expert on who she is and what she loves and her gifts, the things that God has given her. Do you know those things? Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, this word weaker is probably better translated more vulnerable vessel. Husbands, you are to understand your wives because when you do so, you honor her as more vulnerable because she needs something from you. She needs your covering, she needs your protection, she needs your provision, she needs to feel safe in your home. And you know what might make her feel safe is if you've actually got a job, that would make her feel safe. Make her feel safe if you did everything you could to protect her. It would make her feel safe if you spoke highly of her. She's more vulnerable. That's why, that's why Satan went after her. And where was Adam? Not protecting his wife. And they are heirs, joint heirs, co-heirs with you in the grace of life. But then Peter says, you should do these things so that your prayers may not be hindered. Hey, husbands, you wanna know why you feel far from the Lord? Because you haven't honored your wife like this. It's right there. 
You wanna know why you feel like your prayers just keep, keep hitting the ceiling? Well, maybe it's because you haven't honored your wife like this. You're not protecting her and providing for her. Maybe it's because you don't see her as a joint heir. You see her as, as something a less than to you. And she gets to come to heaven on your coattails. You want your prayers to reach heaven? Honor your wife. You wanna get back in union with the Lord? You feel far from him? Honor your wife so that your prayers may not be hindered. Ephesians 5.33, Paul sums up this uh, dissertation on marriage representing Jesus and the church, and he says, however, let each one of you husbands love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. How do we live as exiles in this land when it comes to our marriage? Husbands, love your wives. And wives, respect your husbands. Every man wants to be respected. Every man does. And if a man who says he doesn't want to be respected says he doesn't want to be respected, what he's saying is, I want you to respect me for not wanting to be respected. Man, we want respect. Not blind submission, not kissing the ring. Just want to be honored. We want to be told we're doing a good job. We want to be told that you see how hard we're working for our family. We want to hear that you see that we love our kids and you're thankful that we help you with dinner. And all the conversations I've had with husbands over the past few months, you know that each one of them helps cook dinner, each one of them helps bath, do bath time, each one of them takes their kids to ball practice. This, this isn't the 1980s where, where dads just go to work and then don't do anything at home, they're working. And wives, it would just be nice to hear that you see it. I think maybe your husband needs to hear that you see it. You respect him, respect him in private and in public. Daryl said this a few weeks ago. Stop speaking ill of your husband to your girlfriends. Honor them in private and public and in word and in deed. And husbands know it would help your wife to respect you if you were respectable. Now, She's called to no matter what, but you sure make her job easier if you're respectful and respectable and honorable. Every man wants to be respected. Every woman wants to be loved. So husbands, how do you love your wife? I don't know, ask her in an understanding way. How does she feel loved? And you say, well, I am loving you. It's, it's, look at our bank account. You know I love you. Maybe she doesn't care about that. Maybe she wants you home more than she wants money in the bank account. Well, I take you out on dates. Well, maybe she doesn't want a date. Maybe she wants you to do the dishes. Do you know her? Do you love her in that way? And wives, you know what would help us if you were to be lovely? What would really help us is that you would receive the love that we're trying to give you. It's hard. It's hard to figure out women. John Mayer has a song and one of the lines is, I've loved seven different women and every one of them was you. That should be in the Bible. I think as the marriage goes, so goes the family. And as the family goes, so goes the community. 
one of the greatest ways to be exiles in our land is to have marriages where husbands love their wives and wives honor their husbands. It's a dying thing. Pray that we have flourishing marriages, not because I think marriage is great, but I do, because I think the gospel is best communicated when a wife honors her husband and a husband loves his wife. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, and we run long, so I'm gonna get us going, but maybe what you need to do today, husbands and wives, is come forward and just pray with your spouse. Maybe there needs to be a conversation of, I think I've done this wrong, and I'm sorry. And if your spouse apologizes to you, that's not the time to give the list of accusations. Maybe you need to sit down with your spouse tonight and just have some hard conversations. Maybe husbands, you need to ask, how can I love you better? Do you feel love this week? And wives, the call for you is not to just be quiet, to just shut up and not say anything. The call for you is to love your husband in such a way that you know how to challenge him. You know how to help lead your home together. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. And what's been broken in your marriage is not a husband or a wife, what's been broken is your own soul. Well, Jesus, as the husband, loves his wife in an unconditional way, in a way that sacrifices all that he has for her good and for his glory. And he's given his life for you. He calls us his bride. And he loves us in an intimate way personal way, if we would admit that we need him as a savior because of our sin, we believe that he is the son of God, the one uh, who rose from the dead to defeat sin and death, then we believe that he is and we name him as Lord of our lives, we would find freedom and salvation in his name and you can do that today. Father, we are a people who um, try to figure so many things out in the flesh so we want to be healed. We, want, we don't want to be healed your way. We want to be healed our way. So God, I, I pray that throughout the room today, throughout our homes and throughout our church, God, that you would give us a spirit of humility. You would give us a spirit of discernment. That we would be so different in the world simply because we love our wives. And we honor our husbands. And that ethic would draw people to you. It feels crazy that, that it's as simple as that in our world today, that that's the most evangelistic thing we can do is to love our spouse well. And so God, I pray that through your word, you would help us to do that. Through your spirit, you would give us power and courage to do that. For those who are single and who are desperate to be married, God, would you give them patience and perseverance for the journey? Complete them with you that they don't seek completion through someone else. Father, we love you and we honor you today. In Jesus' name, amen.